this week, we say goodbye to Adrian. It's a topic that has occupied quite a bit of time on this podcast over the years, arguably too much time, but let's take just a little more now for a moment of silence. This week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm a very sad Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Gore. It's Thursday, February 1st, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. A novel paid medicine from Vertex Pharmaceuticals met its main goal in a pair of pivotal studies, but with a catch. We'll discuss the escalating debate over the drug's future. We'll also talk about the latest news in the life sciences, including the aforementioned epitaph for Adjuhelm and the retirement of an FDA icon. All that after a word from our sponsor. Hey, Read Out Loud listeners, Bob Herman here, Stats Business of Healthcare reporter and the writer behind the newsletter, Healthcare Inc. Healthcare Inc. is a weekly newsletter devoted to unpacking the business and secret inner workings of the U.S. healthcare industry. If you're someone who has ever received a medical bill or craves in-depth policy explainers or loves a playful meme now and again, I highly recommend you check this newsletter out. Learn more at the link in this episode's description. And now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Thanks. So, after less than a thousand days, everyone, the time has come. It's a moment. Adjahelm, We're here. Yeah. It's a moment. Adjahelm, the Alzheimer's treatment uh, sold and marketed by Biogen and in combination with Acyth, uh Pharmaceuticals, is no more. Adam, Damien, how are you feeling today? Well, the first thing is I feel like, of course, we have to talk about Adjahelm on this podcast because we have sort of become known <laughs> certainly for spending an awful lot of time talking about that Alzheimer's drug on this podcast and and doing a lot of reporting. So, uh, you know, as I as I mentioned on Twitter when the news came out, um, you know, Adjuhelm has been very good to us, Damien uh, <laughs> and Stat and other reporters who have covered all aspects of that story. We, we even won some journalism prizes for our reporting. So that's what every drug developer hopes for is that the drug that they develop will be good to the drug. Exactly. It's the, it's the most important thing. It's, so, you know, yeah, so the, it's a, it's a it's a sad it's a sad ending on many in many levels. Um but we won't we won't be writing much more about Adjahelm or probably talking about it more on this podcast. So, but here we are. Maybe this is the last hurrah. Yeah, let's exercise the demons. I guess we should have led with so the news is uh, this week, Biogen said that it would hand the rights to Adjuhelm, the Alzheimer's disease treatment that won, I don't even know what the adjective is. I used the phrase polarizing recently. I That's feel like a that good adjective. even doesn't really meet yeah. the moment. It won approval from the FDA in 2021, and there was a lot of intention and discussion around that approval at the time. The news is Biogen is giving the rights back to a Swiss company called Neuromune, which is the inventor of Adjuhelm um, that Biogen had been working with since way back in 2007, developing the drug, and effectively, Biogen has washed its hands of this medicine. Now, in the abstract, 
This is not whatsoever surprising. Biogen had all but ceased marketing it uh, some time ago, and the company's new CEO, Chris Wiebacher, who took over in 2022, made pretty clear, I think it's fair to say, that Agihelm was not in his plans for the future, that there would be no you know, reclamation project for this medicine, that it had such a catastrophic downfall um, under the previous administration, which actually I think was warmly received by specifically investors, but I think everybody watching Biogen, because there was this kind of fear in the last administration that Biogen might kind of mount the case for Adjuhelm once more, despite the fact that it had found a mulligan, in, in Chris Wiebacher's own words, in the form of Lakembi, a different Alzheimer's medicine invented by its partner, ASI, that did what Adjuhelm could not, which is demonstrate what appeared to be a clear, albeit modest, effect on the progression of the disease in a clinical trial and win an FDA approval that, well, there's conversation about, hardly led to the kind of like Sturm und Drang that came with Adjuhelm. So this is truly Biogen closing the book on this chapter. And and while, like I said, it, there was no drama involved necessarily because Adjuhelm's last rites arguably had already been read, I think it is worth looking back on this kind of business school case study that we watched play out dating back, well, really dating back quite a long time, but but mostly to 2019 when Adjuhelm's first funeral, uh, premature funeral, apparently, was conducted. Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting to look back, Damien, and and starting with what you just said is just how, you know, we had sort of, rem- we remember, we had, we had thought that this was going to be another... Uh, amyloid targeted antibody that sort of like you know that 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 left us with a failed clinical trial if we, if we remember biogen sort of surprised everybody by announcing that you know after they had done an interim analysis of these two large phase three studies that you know that the drug the drug didn't work and that they were discontinuing development and that was you know kind of a shocking surprise to everybody oh maybe not a surprise to folks who didn't believe in the amyloid hypothesis but um, it sort of came out of the blue and, you know, we all thought, all right, well, here's another amyloid targeted antibody that, you know, just gets on the trash heap of uh, biotech drug development. But then, you know, surprise, then they sort of resurrected it, right? And, you know, they said they had done some additional analyses of the drug and and, and found a way, um, a way to bring it forward and, and submit it to the FDA. And, and that was kind of the the starting that was sort of the starting gun for a lot of our reporting and, and, and a lot of the drama that ensued. Of course, you you two and um, some of our other colleagues from STAT then spent the ensuing years dissecting what became one of the most controversial, at least of its of this era, um, if not of FDA history, potentially at large, um, one of the most controversial decisions to first approve Agihelm give it an accelerated approval and override, in many cases, concerns from the advisory committee that had assessed the the data from the aforementioned um, failure turned potential success um, <laughs> in, of those two phase three clinical trials. Yeah, disentangling that moment, which is the thing that made everyone mad, I think, summer 2021. Um, we, you know, there's some stuff we reported and a lot of stuff that we learned much later at the end of 2022 as a result of a congressional investigation into this whole process. And so, you know, the, the two major players here are obviously Biogen, but then the FDA. And so, as we wrote back then, the FDA went far and away above its standard procedure to work hand in hand with Biogen to 
analyze the data from these, well, I guess they are failed trials if they were terminated for futility, but these complicated trials uh, that Adam referred to before and make the case that this was an approvable medicine, which as we learned in our reporting, the FDA seemed to accept pretty quickly in the process, or at least from the view of Biogen, such that Biogen was fully expecting this approval. So there's that on the FDA side. And, and you know, a later congressional investigation chided the FDA for inappropriate conduct in this and said that it, you know, raises questions about how the agency pursued this endeavor. They're supposed to be an independent regulator taking a sort of if not oppositional, at least regulatory take on anything in front of them. And they seem to do very much not that. And then we have within Biogen, the other thing that pissed everybody off at the time, which was their decision to set a list price of $56,000 a year for this medicine that, you know, in the nicest phrasing, had complicated evidence supporting the idea that it was both safe and efficacious for patients with early stage Alzheimer's disease. And so the the downfall of Adjuhelm, I think, was set in motion really on that day of the FDA approval because there was the shock of the approval, the reverberation when people realized that the FDA had indicated it for all patients with Alzheimer's disease, the roughly 6 million Americans who have any form of Alzheimer's, not just the maybe 20% of that figure who would fit into the early stage category of patients who were actually enrolled in the clinical trials, which these clinical trials people already had doubts about. And then hours later, Biogen's press release telling us that it would be $56,000 a year. And what we learned in the ensuing congressional investigation is that Biogen hired consultants to test the waters on a variety of prices and had evidence presented to them that anything over $40,000 a year would cause serious pushback and would conceivably imperil the budget of Medicare, which is which would be paying for most of this because of the ages of people who generally have Alzheimer's disease. And that the company pushed ahead anyway to maximize the potential profits of this, hoping to have in its hands the biggest pharmaceutical product in history. And then, of course, a few months <laughs> right. later, Medicare decided that, unlike the FDA, they would only cover use, you know, use of the of Adjahelm for people who met the met those clinical trial criteria. It's just this this saga is just like bouncing back between to, you know, the varying points. Um, well, I think, well, I think the legacy, you know, Alex, to your point, no, to your point, I think the legacy or one of the lessons here, and you mentioned, you mentioned CMS, Allison, is, you know, this was sort of an extraordinary decision in some respects by the C, by CMS, by Medicare, right? That, you know, you had this FDA decision, the FDA had taken, made this controversial decision to grant accelerated approval to an Alzheimer's drug. And it's, you know, it's partner- agency, right? I mean, they, you know, CMS, Medicare decided that, you know, yeah, you, FDA, yeah, you approve this, but we're not going to pay for it. Um, and I thought, you know, that's one of the, that's one of the interesting sort of, that's a legacy lesson here is that, you know, that the FDA's power to approve drugs, you know, I don't want to say it's, it, it, it was sort of checked or um, they were chastened, but, you know, I think that the sort of the almost unanimous opposition to this approval, you know, from just about every corner, you know, politicians, scientists, Alzheimer's experts, um, you know, that that caused such an uproar that, you know, that CMS sort of, they said, look, we're not, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to reimburse for this drug. And that, you know, and that was just an extraordinary uh, decision on their part. And I think it sort of sets, I don't know if it sets a precedent necessarily, but it certainly shows that, you know, that 
that these are two agencies that, that normally sort of work hand in hand, but don't always need to. And that um, in certain circumstances like this, you know, an FDA approval um, doesn't necessarily lead to uh, reimbursement. And and obviously, because because of what CMS did, the drug never you know was 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 a failure commercially, and now leading to what we're talking about today, you know, that the drug is essentially, you know, it's not officially taken off the market, but it is essentially, you know, it's now dead and buried. I do want to ask you too. I I was thinking about this the other night. Do you think that Biogen and ASI could have gotten Lakembi approved if not for Agihelm? Yes, but it's a little complicated and a little in the weeds because it was the FDA's decision to grant accelerated approval to Agihelm that, one, made everybody mad, but two, made it to where Lakembi could win an accelerated approval in January of 2023. However, the backlash to Agihelm made it to where, and ASI talked about this openly, that accelerated approval was functionally meaningless to the commercial prospects of Lakembi, such that the company immediately submitted for a full approval with fuller evidence and won that later in 2023. And that was really what kicked off the commercial launch for it. So, so like the answer is yes, but I feel like spiritually <laughs> the answer is no, or rather... <laughs> You know, especially the way uh, one thing that's worth noting here is that the partnership between Biogen and ASI is such that Biogen led the commercialization and regulatory stuff for Aduhelm, and conversely, ASI did that for Lakembi. So we kind of watched arguably another business school case study of two different companies taking two different approaches to the same goal, which is, you know, successfully commercializing an Alzheimer's therapy. Obviously, A-size is the one you would probably want to replicate if you were doing them over, but there's some interesting nuance there. And so, but I think what your question gets at is like, what is the ultimate legacy of Adjuhelm? We all spend so much time- Let's also remember, Damien, you know, that the FDA, you know, rejected Eli Lilly's Denanomab for accelerator. Right. Right. So- you know, and, and essentially, you know, essentially said to said to Lily, you know, we want to see, we want to see full, you know, we want to see a confirmatory study. We want to see whether the drug actually benefits patients, which, you know, now we know it did and we're waiting for that approval. So, you know, maybe one of the legacies here is, you know, the FDA in terms of some of the maybe, yes, they set this precedent with accelerated approval, but, you know, functionally, maybe they don't anymore, particularly for sort of large, you know, diseases with, you know, in, in large, large you know, with large patient populations, it's, you know, it's maybe it's more difficult now to get accelerated approval. I mean, yeah, I, you know, it, it's impossible to think that the FDA didn't feel um, chastened by by what happened uh, with Adjuhelm. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing is searching for a legacy of Adjuhelm. I, <laughs> well, one, why would one do that? But we're, we're too deep now for me to, to back out of it. But um there is this isn't necessarily exculpatory for Biogen, but you know they they terminated these trials. The trials were a mess. The company kind of admitted that, but they were trying to find the truth within this messy data. And if you if you look at what they presented, what they basically say is the patients who got a high enough dose of this medicine for a long enough duration had a small modest but legitimate effect on the course of their disease. If you look at the Lakembi study, which was much better run, it led to, or they had patients who did get the right dose for a long amount of time, and they had a modest but real effect on the disease. And the same thing goes for the Eli Lilly study. There is a school of thought, and it's this isn't some harebrained thing. I mean, Lon Schneider of, uh, is it USC or Stanford? USC. I shouldn't get that wrong. USC. 
USC, um, published a kind of meta-analysis fairly recently looking at these medicines in addition to one from Roche that also failed. And when you kind of try to isolate the variables, squint, compare the trials, which again, this is not advisable scientifically, but it's you know, worthwhile, I think, philosophically, there's a strong argument that all of these anti-amyloid agents are relatively similar in terms of how they work in clearing amyloid from the brain. And the differentiating factor between the so-called failed ones in the form of Aduhelm and the Roche antibody and the conceivably successful ones in the form of Lakembi um, and Denanumab, the Eli Lilly medicine, is one of trial design. That Biogen's major failure was not designing a bad drug or that Aduhelm was in some way, you know, flawed from the outset, but rather they ran the wrong study, which is very, very common in the history of Alzheimer's disease development. And so the legacy of Aduhelm may be that, I guess it was kind of this stepping stone toward people not perfecting, but improving upon this recipe, but not in the sense of having a better drug, but in the sense of running better trials to show that similar drugs were actually effective. Yeah, maybe the simple lesson here, take-home lesson is don't conduct interim analyses of phase three <laughs> studies in Alzheimer's. You know, the other thing I wanted to mention, Damien, about this is just, you know, the effect that it had on on Biogen, right? I mean, you know, this caused all kinds of ruckus internally, uh, as we reported, uh, you know, and if you think about just the, just the sheer number of people who were, you know, directly involved with Aduhelm or indirectly involved or leadership at Biogen who are no longer there, because of this, right? You know, Michelle Vunatis, CEO, gone. Al Sanrock, you know, scientist, R&D, you know, who spearheaded the development of uh, Aduhelm, gone. You know, Sus- Samantha Butt-Haberlin, also on the Alzheimer's team, gone. Um, and then you look at, you know, and then Billy Dunn, right? The the guy at the FDA, the top regulator of, uh, of Alzheimer's drugs uh, at the FDA, gone. So it's, you know, a lot of people who are, who are part and parcel of this are, are no longer connected to it in that way. Well, we clearly have a, um, you know, business textbook to write about this. Um, oh, God. Just like, you know, enriching the lives of NBA students. I just think we have to decide to who to sell it to. You know, do we sell this story to Hulu, Netflix? I don't know. We'll, we'll have to talk about Email that offline. Email us your thoughts. But, okay, I feel like let's it would turn... take a lot of dramatic rewriting so? to get the kind of plot beats of a television yeah. show into this. Oh, I don't know. You know, we can we'll we'll, we'll, we'll work on that. Their yeah. people, but if, if there's any talent, if there's any agents out there who want to, you know, want to work this into a script with our, you know, with our assistance, just let us know. In the meantime, let's turn to the debate of this week, which is the highly anticipated uh, pain data from Vertex for uh, VX five four eight which this week announced that it had succeeded in its phase three trial. But as people have begun to dissect how the drug compared to opioids in the studies, um, there's been a, a very heated debate. And I know that even like I have very differing thoughts from Adam on the utility of VX548. Uh, what are your, I mean, Damien, Adam, like your two, your, your kind of like top line thoughts on the drug? Woof. Well, um, so uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's worth noting it met its primary endpoint, which was superiority compared to placebo for patients suffering from acute pain in the aftermath of surgery, in this case, bunionectomy and uh, what people describe as a tummy tuck surgery. Um, but the sticking point, of course, is that there was another arm of the study that looked at how Vertex's drug compared to Vicodin, which is a combination of the opioid hydrocodone um, and, and common generic uh, over-the-counter painkillers. And it was 
not statistically significantly superior in one study and was, I'm not going to try saying statistically significantly again, although actually I just did, <laughs> uh, it was inferior to uh, Vicodin in the second study. And so the seed of the debate is, what does that mean? And I mean, I my top, I, I don't have a strong opinion. I'm easily swayed, I find, by, I'm like George W. Bush, the last person I talk to is kind of like the person who's, uh, <laughs> whose words linger in my mind. But the debate basically boils down to, this is still a, it could be a successful medicine upon approval because it met its primary goal and the aversion to prescribing opioids for their, you know, addictive potential and also for the difficulty, frankly, of prescribing them for a lot of physicians because of controls put in, um, in response to the overdose crisis that this country is still going through will mean that there is still a demand among prescribers and thus a market for this therapy. And the other side of that is, Basically, no, <laughs> no, it won't. Uh, they needed to demonstrate that there was more value in this drug because everything that it competes against is generic. Vicodin, other over-the-counter pain medicines um, are widely available. And, and despite those concerns in an acute care setting, in the post-operative setting, the argument goes, people aren't as worried about the abuse potential of opioids because it's a short course of therapy. This is not something you're taking for chronic pain. It is something you're taking until you recover from the procedure in question. I feel like that's my table setting act. I don't, Adam, what do you think? Yeah, I, Vertex deserves a lot of credit for pursuing the development of VX548. You know, this is a, a novel mechanism for pain. It, it, it is non-addictive. I think we all understand the importance of, of finding uh, pain medi medicines that are not addictive. You know, we, we, we understand um, that opioids are bad and that the, the, the less we use opioids, um, the better. Uh, so, you know, kudos to Vertex for pursuing this. And and as you said, Damien, for, you know, for f seemingly finding a drug um, that that does that does do what it's supposed to do. Uh, and and yes, they achieved the primary goals of these of these phase three studies in a post-surgical, uh, you know, acute pain setting. You know, but at the same time, we all live in the real world. And, uh, you know, Vicodin is a generic uh, cheap medicine for pain, and it and it, it is quite effective. Um, you know, despite the side effects and despite uh, the addictive potential. And as you mentioned, as you noted, Damien, and you know, in these sort of tummy tuck and bunionectomy surgeries, you know, you're not taking you know you're not taking Vicodin for a very long time. You're taking it for you know for a few days afterwards to sort of just alleviate that acute pain that comes after surgery, um, and. You kind of so that's the comparison that I think people make. Uh, you know whether or not insurers will reimburse for a, a medicine that is going to be more expensive than Vicodin, and whether you know it actually provides the the kind of pain relief that's necessary. You know, you know that what really uh, stood out to me in this is you know when I looked at the results um, and in that bunionectomy study where you know Vertex's drug was statistically significantly inferior. To Vicodin. I mean, that was like, a, that was a, I saw, I saw that I was, that was a huge disappointment. You know, that is not something that you expected. I mean, yes, it's, it's very hard to, to beat Vicodin, but you can't be significantly worse than, than Vicodin. I think that's where people were drawing the line. And I think, again, on a relative basis, and, you know, you know, not that, that the stock price matters is not the, the thing that matters the most, but, you know, you know, Vertex had added like $20 billion in market cap 
because of the you know the excitement the the optimism the potential for this drug you know going back to December when a mid-stage study of the drug in chronic pain had come out and it was positive and so you know the stock had really taken off so there were the expectations for this thing were really really high and I just don't think that they met those expectations you know and I you know again you can and there's that that's the debate that's ongoing yeah, I don't know, I mean, what to make of the market's reaction to this. I mean, part of me, I, I agree with you, Adam, that it's like the people just got so excited in December that like, unless this data had been stellar, there was always going to be like a, you know, kind of market shift. It just felt like it had been built up so much. But I think that there's no question that this drug, there's very little question that this drug will get approved by the FDA. It kind of comes down to... I mean, to, to touch on the themes of <laughs> of the Adjuham conversation, pricing and coverage and mm-hmm. how, you know, Medicare decides to cover this drug um, will be hugely critical and how uh, Vertex prices it. I think that there's still I mean, this week's data, I don't know, doesn't kind of deflate my opinion of the drug's potential. I think because I've I just look at the situation and and say that, well, obviously, the greater opportunity is in chronic pain management. And so I'm I'm not really that like frazzled by, you know, how it compares to opioids in an acute setting. It it, the market opportunity in chronic pain is just so much larger um, and always has been. And it's it's shown well there. Well, they, they have to run, you know, they haven't started the phase three studies in chronic pain yet, right? So they had this mid-stage study. We talked about this on a previous podcast. Yeah, the data look really good, right? And they looked very encouraging. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and it's the data that supports Vertex moving ahead into larger phase three studies in chronic pain. And um, so we'll see what those data look like, right? And, you know, we should note, look, uh, you know, Vertex... Uh, one of the one of Vertex's strengths is that they don't just sort of settle on a single drug. Um, you know, they've got backups, they've got next generation compounds that they test, and and oftentimes those compounds look better, are more effective, safer uh, than the original compounds. So, you know, Vertex has said publicly that they have other they have other drugs uh, in the you know in their in their labs in their pipeline in this from this class of that they will that they will study and um, they may figure out you know there may be a better drug somewhere back there um, more effective drug that would sort of put all of these questions to rest um, again I just sort of I, I, I you know my bias is that I sort of look at these things through a you know through a stock lens right and um, you know. I, and I just feel like expectations. And, you know, I think Brian Scorney, uh, the Baird analyst, you know, he downgraded Vertex uh, this week, you know, based on all this. And, you know, he called it irrational exuberance um, over, you know, over this pain drug. And I, and I think that that's a, that's a really, I, I mean, I think that, that he's right about that. I think that there was ir- some irrational exuberance over, you know, over this, over these data and over this, over this, um, you know, this this product that they're putting, this pain drug that they're developing. One of the other statistics, you know, you were you were talking, Adam, about um, one of the the segments of this data, um, how VX five four eight compared to opioids, um, and was you know inferior in pain management. I forget which aspect, you know, which arm of the of the the study this came from, um, but as one of our colleagues noted in in coverage this week. About 75 to 80% of patients on 
VX548 placebo or opioids had to use ibuprofen for extra pain relief. So I think there's also still this lingering question of like, can Vertex just make this drug look better by considering a higher dose in some of these follow-up studies that they're doing? Yeah, I think that's a reasonable question. And, and we've seen um, you know physicians point to that, that the, the medicine seems safe enough to where you could conceivably titrate up. And I think it's understandable, though, why Vertex approached this somewhat conservatively. It's a novel drug, novel mechanism of action. You're testing it in you know, a patient population where the competing medicines are generic and the safety profiles are known that you would err on the side of caution with respect to toxicity. But I think, as Adam mentioned, you know, Vertex is very proactive about this kind of thing. So I'm sure that they are looking at all of the data and, and kind of tabulating what the, the sort of maximal powerful thing they have is. And to your point, Allison, about about rescue medication, um, you know, it was ibuprofen, which they allowed as rescue medication if people needed extra pain relief. Um, but I thought it was kind of funny in the study in the study that they allowed 400 milligrams of ibuprofen to be used. Um, I don't know about you, but when I take when I take Advil, it's three it's three Advil that I pop every time. 600 <laughs> milligrams. That's like right. I mean, who the hell who the hell is only taking two Advil? Come on now, we're all we're all taking three. Finally, this week, we saw the retirement of Janet Woodcock, a longtime and truly superlatively influential regulator at the FDA who spent decades in charge of the FDA's new drugs division. And by dint of that had, I mean, we don't have enough time to list how many uh, circumstantial FDA decisions have her fingerprints on them. But the point is her long, long career at the agency has come to an end. She's a legend. Let's just call her. I mean, uh, Janet Woodcock is an FDA legend. It really, uh, what an amazing career, 30, 40 years at the FDA. She's on the biologic side. She was on the drug side. I mean, she remember she ran the FDA. Uh, She was the interim commissioner for a while. You know, Um, uh, she's, you know, yeah, it's just, it's amazing how many, like how many policies that she's had a hand in in dealing with and and things she's done and changes she's made there. So, yeah. you know, hats off to an incredible career. Absolutely. She she sat down for like a series of exit interviews with different outlets this week. She spoke to Stats, uh, Sarah Overmull. Um, and so, there were some, I mean, little irreverent moments. I recall reading in one uh, piece that uh, she realized during her time at the FDA just how much she hates like bureaucracy and paperwork, which... <laughs> As an outsider, I'm like, that's the first thing I would imagine as part of just working for a federal agency is doing a lot of paperwork and dealing with a lot of bureaucracy. Um, Janet, I'm glad that you went into that with open eyes. <laughs> but um, she truly was has been at the agency for, as, as you both have mentioned, you know, hugely um, influential decisions. And... I thought it was really fascinating, kind of going back to the the Biogen conversation and the division that happened between the how the FDA approved Agihelm and for which patients and what Medicare ultimately decided they were going to cover. Uh, she made a comment that she's noticed over the last couple of decades that there's been less and less deference towards agencies in general and, and federal agencies and more attention. You know, in this case, she was talking about court cases involving mifepristone and, and other uh, uh, reproductive health measures and, and remarking that she's noticed that 
federal agencies are just getting less deference from Congress and from the general public, and more and more is kind of going back to what is literally written into statutes and into uh, bylaws and other tiny bits of paperwork uh, that influence our country, which is fascinating. You know, she didn't. You know, she didn't want to comment on the Mifepristone case. Uh, you know, for obvious reasons, it's still you know, winding its way through the courts. And you know, we had the same situation last year. We had. Uh, Rob Califf in the office, and you know he didn't really want to talk about it either. Um, but you have to imagine that uh, FDA officials, you know, like Janet Woodcock, are are concerned, right? They're concerned that um, the regulatory powers of the FDA and their ability to sort of make decisions based on science, uh, you know, is is being called into question and and may be weakened by these kind of things going on. And I'm sure that that's a big concern for her. But I think you know one of her you know, obviously, her one of her. You know, she's she's known for so many things. Um, I, you know, I, I think for us at the biotech side of the world, you know, we we know her maybe mostly for you know the decision that she made to grant accelerated approval to Ateplersin, which was the the drug for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, you know, that was uh, developed by Sarepta and marketed by Sarepta, and how controversial that decision was outside the agency and inside, you know, that there was a, that she was sort of a lone, a lone wolf there deciding that, you know, based on the ability of this drug to make a minuscule amount of this dystrophin protein, that that was, um, that was enough to, to grant accelerated approval. And that was a, you know, a, a precedent setting decision, one that she has never backed down from, uh, even, you know, and as you mentioned, our our colleague Sarah Omarmal, um, you know, interviewed uh, interviewed Janet, and you know she she's not sorry for that. I think she she continues to stand by that decision, despite the fact that we you know to this day uh, we still don't know whether uh, Etepelsin uh, is a, an effective drug. Um, the the confirmatory study is is still underway and may never really offer a, a true um, may never really give us the answer that that people that people want. Well, and as Janet Woodcock told uh, Sarah in that interview, she will now devote more of her time to gardening and to her grandchild. But also she mentioned, without a lot of details, some kind of new endeavor involving technology and patience. So it's it's not a full-blown retirement, and we'll see what Janet Woodcock has next in store. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether or not you want us to talk about Agilehelm in a future episode of The Read Out Loud. I mean, because <laughs> we could if you want us to. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week.